For the last several weeks, we have been in a series that we've called Bumper Sticker Theology. The idea is that there are a lot of bumper stickers that people have on their vehicles, and many times the bumper stickers are trying to teach us something about who God is and what God is like. And with these bumper stickers that are teaching us theology, our question, what we want to know is, is it good theology? Is it something that we could take and embrace and live out in our lives? Today, we're looking at probably the very first bumper sticker that taught theology that I can remember in my life. You've probably seen it before. God is my co-pilot. Right? We've seen it in bumper stickers and license plates. And Jesus is my co-pilot. And we've probably seen it Hundreds of times. And I know I have since the first time I saw it when I was a kid. And, and on the surface, it can seem like there's probably nothing wrong with this bumper sticker. God is with us. God is helping us. God is there. And all of that sounds good. But let's think about for a second what a co-pilot actually is. Right? According to Wikipedia, co-pilot is the first officer, second in command of the aircraft Right, who is the who's second command of the captain, who is the legal commander. Now, in the event of an incas, in, incapit, in the event that the captain can no longer continue his duties, the first officer assumes command of the aircraft. Um, and, and this understanding of what a co-pilot is, it's really kind of what reveals the problem of the bumper sticker. The idea of the bumper sticker is that God is with us and has a say in our lives. And that that is good. But Jesus calls on us to to follow him. And is that really what it means to follow Jesus? That that, yes, he's with us and he has a say. But he's really second in command. And the only time. He's really in full control So when we're out of control and we kind of toss our hands in the air and say, Jesus, take the wheel. Is that the only time that Jesus rules over our life? Well, let's see what Jesus actually has to say about this. Open your Bible to Matthew 16 and verse 21 is where we're going to start. If you have a pew Bible, it's page 747. When you find that, I'll ask you to stand on the reading of God's word. Matthew says, from that time, and we'll get back to that because that's important. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. If you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The title of the message is God is my co-pilot. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We've gathered here in your name to study your word and to let you speak to us today. So, Father, like Samuel, we cry out, speak, Lord. 
For your servants are listening. Let your Holy Spirit, let Him be very present and very at work in all aspects of this service. Father, let your Holy Spirit anoint me that I could speak your word clearly and accurately. Father, let your Holy Spirit anoint me that I could speak your word that while in truth, but also in love. Father, let your Holy Spirit anoint me that I would not in any way be a hindrance to what you want done. That Lord, I would say what you want said, nothing more and nothing less. Lord, at the same time, let your Holy Spirit anoint our ears that we could hear what you're saying to us through the word. Let us hear what Jesus means when he says to take up our cross and follow him. Father, let your Holy Spirit take your word and make it weigh heavily upon us. Truly, we have gathered to study the words. Almighty God, creator of heaven and earth. We ought to tremble at the things you say to us today. And Lord, we were tempted to be flippant. Take that away. Where we're tempted to be dismissive, take that away. Where we're tempted to ignore, take that away. Make our hearts good ground. Let the word sink in deep and bring change to our lives. We want to be like Jesus. So let us hear, let us understand, and let us obey. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. That you may be seated. This passage comes immediately after Peter's great confession of Jesus being the Christ. Now that context is important uh, because it makes Jesus' words and what he's talking about so much more surprising. So picture the scene. Jesus is with the twelve and he says, who do people say that I am? So they rattle off various things they've heard people say about who they thought Jesus was. And then Jesus asked that all-important question that even us, we have to answer. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, ever the spokesman, steps forward and he begins to speak and he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right? I mean, boom, he just knocks it out of the park with that answer. Jesus affirms that what Peter has said, it's a home run answer by telling him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. And also I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Yeah! I mean, that's great, right? That's that's exciting. The church will be built. The gates of hell will not be prevail, will not prevail against it. Jesus is the Christ, the one that they had been waiting on for centuries. So what you'd imagine now is that it would go into Jesus having a planning meeting, talking about ways that we're going to strategize and conquer and what we're going to do to kick the Romans out of Jerusalem and out of Israel altogether, how we're going to set up. A great national kingdom like David and Solomon had years and years ago. But instead, Jesus changes gears on them. We go from a conquering Christ to Jesus beginning to tell them that he must go to Jerusalem 
and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Now, the disciples heads must have spun at how rapidly things had changed. How on earth did we go from a conquering Christ to a suffering Christ? How did we go from a church that that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it to the founder and leader of the church suffering many things by the, the very people, the leaders of the people that were meant to embrace him and worship him? We came to a suffering Christ because conquering always follows the cross. But before there can be a crown of gold, there, there had to be a crown of thorns. And that's what Jesus says. Notice his words. He began to say that he, he must, not that he could or even that he should, but, but he must go to Jerusalem. And he must suffer many things. And he must die and rise again. The cross was an imperative for Jesus. It was a necessity. There was no going around it. But why? Why was the cross a necessity? Well, the two primary reasons are that, one, that the cross was necessary because it was a fulfillment of prophecy. God had, had long said through the Old Testament prophets that the Christ would suffer and the Christ would die badly. The cross was also necessary to pay the penalty for the sins of the people that God was going to redeem. Now, lots of passages show these two truths, that it's prophesied and it's a, a way to take away sin. But probably none better than Isaiah 53. And I want us to look at that quickly today. So turn to flip to Isaiah 53 or 52 verse 12 is where we'll actually start. But hold your finger at Matthew 16 because we're coming back here. Last year I was reading in my Bible. I just kind of sat down to find a passage to meditate on through the Holy Week season. And my, my mind turned to Isaiah to this particular passage. And so I was reading it a couple of different times on this one day. So I could think on it all week long. And, and as I was reading it on this day, the Holy Spirit just kept saying, For you. As I would go through the things that, that Jesus had done. So I went back through and, and I added for me. And I put myself in the story. So that I would remember that as I read through this from now on. So what I want to do is we're going to do that for us today. We're going to put ourselves in the story, so to speak. I, I'm going to read it out loud, just the whole chapter. And I'm going to put myself in the story. And as I read it out loud and put myself in the story, you read it to yourself. And you put yourself in the story. And as we do, we're going to understand a bit more of what Jesus has done for us. This will remind us, it will help us to see why God as my co-pilot is so inadequate as an expression of who Jesus is. So Isaiah 52 and 13. Behold, my servant, which we know would be Jesus, shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man for me. And his form more than the sons of men for me. He shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. 
For what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they had not heard, they shall consider. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And shall be as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men for me. He is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And I hid, as it were, my face from him. He was despised and I did not esteem him. Surely he has borne my griefs, carried my sorrows. Yet I did not esteem him. I esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement for my peace was upon him. By his stripes I am healed. Like a sheep I have gone astray. I have turned to my own way. And the Lord has laid on him my iniquity. He was oppressed and he was afflicted for me. Yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and judgment, for who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For my transgressions he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him for me. He has put him to grief for me. When you make his soul an offering for my sin, he shall see his seed, me, and shall prolong my days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify me. For he shall bear my iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul unto death for me. He was numbered with the transgressors for me. And he bore my sin and made intercession for my transgressions. Go ahead and turn back to Matthew 16. When Jesus said... That he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. That's what he was talking about. And something like that done for us demands a response. And we basically only have two ways that we can respond. We can respond like Peter. And we'll talk about that at the end. Or we can respond in the way that Jesus says we must respond. What does Jesus demand? What does Jesus expect because of what he has done? Well, decide to follow Jesus. That's where it all starts. And Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, the first part of our response is to have a desire to follow Him. 
And that, that seems like a logical response. He has done all of that for me. So it seems natural that what I would do is to say, I want to follow this one that has done all of this for me. But the desire that Jesus is talking about, it's more than, a, than saying, golly gee, it would be nice to follow Jesus. Rather, it is a, a determination that we are going to follow Jesus no matter what. It is a resolve that says nothing is going to stop me from following Jesus. But think of the, the words of the old song, I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none, no none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. My cross I'll carry till Jesus I see. No turning back. No turning back. The world before me, the world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back. No turning back. That's what Jesus means when He says if anyone desires to come after Him, that's the kind of desire, the resolve, the determination to follow Jesus that, that we, we will have when we understand what He has done for us. But any, any desire that is less than that is honestly a testimony that I do not really understand what Jesus has done. When I fully grasp the death He died, the price He paid, the horrors He endured just for me, there will be a longing, a desire, a resolve that says, I will go where He leads me no matter what. It is something that drives us to do the will and the want of Jesus. It is a willful Choice we make. We make the decision to do that. But then other decisions follow. So I deny myself. Or I, follow, I decide to follow Jesus. Then I deny myself. In order to follow Jesus. I, I must deny myself. Now let, let's just be real honest. It's not something we're particularly good at. Is it? I mean self-denial. It's not high on the list of what many of us do in life. I mean, if we were just to be really honest, we would probably admit we're much better at self-indulgence than self-denial. And everything in our culture not only testifies to this, but encourages this. Right? I mean, to deny a desire we have is seen as the, the worst form of, of self-cruelty that there is. To tell someone that just because you want to do it doesn't mean you can do it is seen as almost hate speech in our day. And yet there is no following Jesus without self-denial. We have to go against our natural tendency, which is to indulge ourselves. But as Disciples of Jesus Christ, we are not free to live in self-indulgent ease. Instead, through self-denial, we are to follow Jesus. Now, the essence of self-denial is saying no to ourselves so that we can say yes to Jesus. Now, that's huge to get. Right? Self-denial isn't about living a monastic life. 
Self-denial isn't about self-flagellation. Self-denial isn't about taking actions that give us the appearance of holiness and devotion. Self-denial is about denying things that, that we want to do that are contrary to what Jesus wants us to do. It is about saying no to desires we have so that we can say yes to desires Jesus has for our life. And this can be seen in any number of ways. It could be regarding sin. We want to gossip, but we know Jesus doesn't want us to. So we say no to ourselves and yes to Jesus. And we refuse to gossip. We may want to be judgmental, but we know that Jesus does not want us to do that. So we say no to ourselves and we say yes to Jesus and we hold that judgmental fault to ourselves. We may want to look at pornography, but Jesus doesn't want us to. So we say no to ourselves and yes to Jesus and we flee sexual temptation. It could be regarding serving Jesus in some way. Jesus wants us to share the gospel, but we're afraid and we don't want to. So we say no to ourselves and yes to Jesus and we tell people about him. Jesus wants us to use the spiritual gift he's given us, but we'd rather not. So we say no to ourselves and yes to Jesus and use our spiritual gifts for his glory. Jesus wants us to forgive someone who has wronged us, but our grudge keeps us warm at night. And so we say no to ourselves and we say yes to Jesus and we forgive for his sake, not theirs. Jesus wants us to pray more, but we want to sleep in. So we say no to ourselves and yes to Jesus and we get up and pray. There is no limit to the different ways self-denial could work itself out. Because there will always be times in our lives in which our will, our want, our desires, our ambitions and our preferences and our comforts will conflict with what Jesus wants us to do and where he is leading us. I mean, that is not something that we ever outgrow, I don't think. As long as we live in this world, we'll have a sinful nature that pulls us to the opposite of what Jesus wants us to do. As long as we live in this world, we're going to be in a world that is hostile and antagonistic towards Jesus and doesn't want us to do what He wants us to do. As long as we live in this world, there is, a, there is an enemy that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, to tempt and to draw away, to keep us from doing the things that Jesus will want us to do. So all throughout our lives, we're going to be pulled in one direction that's opposite of what Jesus would have us to do. And in those moments, we have to say no to ourself so that we can say yes to Jesus. That, that's the essence of self-denial. And there is no way to follow Jesus without self-denial. It is a non-negotiable aspect of following Jesus. If, in a lot of ways, you could say, on, on a personal level. If I don't ever say no to myself so that I can say yes to Jesus, and that's the key. It's not just saying no to me. I say no to me so I can say yes to Jesus. If, if there are never times in my life when I'm saying no to me so that I can say yes to Jesus, the reality is I'm not following Jesus. I may have convinced myself I am, but I'm not. Because unless, unless you're perfect, unless you're Jesus, there's always going to be stuff in your life that you 
want to do that Jesus doesn't want you to do. There's always going to be stuff Jesus wants you to do that you don't want to do. Following Jesus is always going to demand that we say no to ourselves about some things so that we can say yes to Jesus. So we decide to follow Jesus. We desire to follow Him. We determine we will. We we deny ourselves and then I have to take up my cross. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Follow me. Denying ourselves, it means, or it leads to taking up our cross. Now, people have confused what it means to to bear our cross in our day. To to take up our cross or to bear our cross, it doesn't mean to, to bear up under some hardship, such as poor health or unemployment or the the sickness of a loved one, a wayward child, or, or even turkey bacon. To take up our cross, it means something much more than that. Jesus' original hearers never would have understood that line of thought about taking up our cross. Because they had seen what a cross was. It wasn't a decoration on the wall or a lapel pin that you wore. It was an instrument of death, violent, horrible, painful death. They understood that. They had seen criminals take up their cross and walk to the top of the hill and be tied or nailed to it, lifted up, and had watched them struggle to breathe, have their legs broken, and eventually suffocate and die. When Jesus told them to take up their cross, take up His cross and follow Him, they understood death as a part of the process. They understood that it was a death to self. A death to to our will, and our wants, and our desires. Denying ourselves and taking up our cross are really two sides of the same coin. You could almost say that they're different ways of saying the same thing. Because we do take up our cross so that we can do whatever Jesus would have us to do. Taking up our cross requires a lot from us. It requires more from us than living a relatively moral life while occasionally attending church. Taking up our our cross, it it means more than, than the common idea of being a good Christian. You know, attending church and avoiding big sins and, and giving some to church occasionally. All of that falls far short of the picture. Taking up the instrument of death to follow Jesus. To take up our cross, it, it is total surrender to Jesus. The type of surrender described in denying ourselves and taking up our cross, it is unconditional surrender. All that I am, all that I have, my hopes, my dreams, my ambition, my life, my morals, my values, my priorities, my attitudes, my reactions, everything. It means we have to give everything to Jesus. And not hold anything back for ourselves. If we say things like, I would do 
anything for Jesus but. I would give anything for Jesus but. I would go anywhere for Jesus but. I would give up anything for Jesus but. See, that but is a demonstration that I have not taken up my cross because there is not total surrender to Jesus. Total surrender to Jesus is Isaiah saying, here am I, send me, without knowing the mission, just that God wants him somebody to go. Total surrender to Jesus is Levi or Matthew getting up from the tax collection booth and walking off to follow Jesus. Total surrender is Peter laying down his fishing nets that were filled to the brim, almost breaking with, with a payload and walking away from a successful business to follow Jesus. It is full, complete surrender. If we are putting limits on what we would do for Jesus, we have not surrendered to Jesus. If we are putting limits on what we would give up for Jesus, we have not surrendered to Jesus. If we put limits on where we would go for Jesus, we have not surrendered to Jesus. And, and then ultimately what that means is we just have not taken up our cross. So to take up my cross, it is total surrender to Jesus, but it's also continual surrender to Jesus. As I mentioned, the, the flesh, our sinful nature, it, it pulls against the Spirit of God at work in our lives. And our flesh, our sinful nature, it is going to resist any desire that comes from Jesus. Always. Always. But don't necessarily limit this to the Holy Spirit or the, to the sinful nature seeking to pull us into sin. But the sinful nature, ultimately, all it really wants to keep us is from doing Jesus' will. Now, if that can mean pulling us into sin, that's great. But if that can mean just not doing something that Jesus would have me to do, that's fine also. Right? The, our sinful nature will take any win it can get. It doesn't require us to go off into great and horrible immorality that makes the news at eight before it declares a win. If our sinful nature can keep us from reading our Bibles when we know we're supposed to, that's a win. If our sinful nature can keep us from praying when we need to, that's a win. If our sinful nature can keep us from church, that's a win. If our sinful nature can keep us from sharing the gospel, that's a win. If our sinful nature can cause us to be hateful to someone that needs Jesus, that's a win. Right? Our sinful nature is always looking for the win. And all that win is... Just not do what Jesus would have us to do. And so continually in our lives, we have to surrender to Jesus. I would I, I wish, Mercy, you have no idea how badly I wish we could have a time of prayer today and we would all come to the altar and we could scream and shout and slap the the pulpit and the pews and holler and pray. And when we got up, man, we would be once for all surrendered to Jesus. Never again in our lives feel that pull to do other than what Jesus would have us to do. But that does not happen. Surrender to Jesus is something that we do over and over and over and over again. Let me share my favorite story that illustrates this. 
To give my life for Christ appears glorious. To pour myself out for others. To pay the ultimate price of martyrdom. I'll do it. I'm ready, Lord, to go out in a blaze of glory. We think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a thousand dollar bill and laying it on a table. Here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all. But the reality for most of us is that Jesus sends us to the bank to cash in the thousand dollars for quarters. And we go through life putting out 25 cents here and 50 cents there. We listen to the neighbor's kids' troubles instead of saying, get lost. We go to a committee meeting. We give a cup of cold water to a shaky old man in a nursing home. Usually giving our life to Jesus is not glorious. It's done in little acts of love. 25 cents at a time. It would be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It is harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. That's what taking up our cross is. The little by little decisions to choose Jesus over ourselves. So to take up my cross, it is total surrender, it is continual surrender, and this is huge, it is willing surrender. Jesus will not tackle you and force you to take up your cross. Jonah would testify that he could if he wants to. But that's really not what he does most of the time. What Jesus would rather is that we would look at the cross and all that he has done for us. And we would say, how could I say no to one who has done all of this for me? He wants that we would love him enough. And we would trust him enough. And we would understand His goodness enough that we would understand, even if we didn't fully comprehend that saying no to myself, even though it is hard, and even though it is uncomfortable, saying no to me and yes to Him, that is ultimately what is best. Not just for Him and His glory, but ultimately even for me. I think, I think if we all had the mind of Christ, we would see that saying no to ourselves and yes to Him is always the right answer. It is always the best answer. I think if we were truly, completely sanctified, we would not want our will, but we would fully and completely want His will. That's what Jesus desires. It's for Him to say, don't do that. And instead of Him dragging us down and keeping us from it, for us to say, okay, Lord, I really want to. My desires are strong in that way. But Lord, I'll choose You today. Today, I will say no to me. And I will say yes to You. And to do that over and over and over again. But Jesus does leave the decision to us. Think about when Jesus called the twelve. And there was no pressure. It's kind of fascinating really to read it. He does walk up to dudes that are fishing. Cleaned up and they've been working the night and they're about to go home and get some rest and come back and do it again. And he says, hey, 
Would you guys come and go with me? And he doesn't give them like these great promises. If you come and go with me, you'll have more wealth than you could possibly imagine. If you can come and go with me, I'll make all your wildest dreams come true. He just says, hey, won't you come and go with me? And then he just stands there. And he waits for them to choose. He walks up to Matthew, receiving the taxes. Good job. Good living. Hey, won't you leave this job? Come and go with me. No promises, no threats. Choose me. And then he waits for Matthew to make the choice to get up from his table and to come to follow Jesus. It was a willing surrender on their part to follow Jesus, and that's always what it has to be. Because one of the ways we know it always has to be a willing choice is that there are stories of people who did not choose Jesus. The best example is probably the rich young ruler. comes to Jesus and he says, Hey, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, You need to keep the commandments, the kids that I have. Jesus said, Well, there's still something you lack. Here's what it is. You need to deny yourself. You need to take up your cross. You need to surrender all of your possessions to me. And surrendering your possessions to me today, that means selling all that you have and give it to the poor. And you come follow me and I'll give you something better. And the rich young ruler, the Bible says, was sad at that saying. And then he turned and he walked away. Now there are two parts of that guy's story that always stand out to me. One is that in Mark's account, when the rich young ruler spoke, the Bible says that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. So what Jesus was asking of him, it wasn't because he was mean. And it wasn't because he was being cruel. Jesus loved him far too much to let him stay the way that he was. What Jesus was asking was not an act of cruelty. And it wasn't an act of, I'm Lord, so let's just see if you'll follow me. It was an act of love. And it'll be that way with us. When Jesus says, deny yourself here and take up your cross, that's not Him saying, I'm Lord, obey me or else. That's not Him saying, you have to mind me because I'm the boss. That's Him saying, I love you more than you can fathom. I love what I have for you better than what you have for yourself. Always. The second thing we have to remember about the rich young ruler is that when he turned and walked away, Jesus let him go. When the cost of discipleship was so high that he could not do it to sell all that he had and give it to the poor, Jesus did not say, sell half. Let's negotiate 30%. 10%, 2%, half a percent. No. Jesus knew what he was worth. And he knew what he offered was worth. And it was worth far more than the rich young ruler had. And he did not alter what he expected. Not one bit. So he let the rich young ruler go. And with us. That's what he's going to do. 
He's not going to alter it. We're not going to make a deal and get a lower demand or expectation. He's going to say, deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. And here's what it means. And though He loves us, if we say, no, I'm going to do what I want to do no matter what, Jesus will let us make that that decision. And that decision, it is a decision to reject Jesus. Right? When He calls on us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Him, we have a choice. We can either embrace what He has said and follow Him, or we can reject Him, like the rich young ruler. But those are the only real choices that we have. Follow Him like the disciples, reject Him like the rich young rulers. That's it. Now at this point, we want, what we want to say is no, 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 no. No, I, I get what you're saying, but I believe in Jesus. And I love Jesus. But I don't have to take up my cross to follow Jesus, to be a believer in Jesus. I, I'm not rejecting Him. I'm just doing what I want to do instead. Well, Jesus knew that we would do that. So look at what He said in verse 25. For whoever desires to take his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, there are results that come from saying no to ourselves and yes to Jesus. And there are consequences for saying yes to ourselves and no to Jesus. And we'll actually talk more about 25, 26 next week. But today, just notice the flow of thought in verse 25. Those who save their life lose it. And those who lose their life find it. That seems so contradictory that it almost doesn't make sense. But here's what he means. To save our lives, it is to say yes to ourselves. It is to say, yes, I'm going to do what I want to do. And no, Jesus, I'm not going to do What you want me to do. And the result of that is that we lose life. But it's not physical life. If you look at verse 26, he speaks of the soul. It's eternal life. When we say yes to ourselves and no to Jesus, we don't just miss out in this life. We miss out in the world to come. But if we lose our life for His sake, well, then we find it. Then we gain, not only in this life, but also in the world to come. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross, is not an optional part of what it means to know Jesus and love Jesus and be saved by Jesus. It is an essential aspect of faith in Jesus. It is as much a part of being saved by Jesus as believing in Jesus. Faith in Jesus and what He has done. It naturally leads to this kind of a life. We recognize what Jesus has done. We recognize that that is supremely great. And really what we see is that that only makes sense. The the only proper response for one that has saved me from eternal 
damnation is a desire to follow him wherever he would go. A desire to deny myself, to say yes for him, because he has already proven that he is for my good. To take up my cross, surrender my life, and do whatever he would want me to do. It's the only rational response. But this does bring us back to Peter and his response. Jesus, remember it started with the cross. I'm going to go to the cross. And now you have to take up a cross. It's intentional on Jesus' part because of Peter's response. As Jesus talked about going to the cross, Peter said, no, he rebuked him. I mean, mark that out, that's a hard word. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. If you'll allow me the liberty, I'll paraphrase this conversation. Jesus said, it is necessary that I go to Jerusalem. And I'm going to be rejected by the religious leaders. And I'm going to be beaten horribly. And I'm going to die on a cross. To which Peter replied, no way. God loves you. Has a wonderful plan for your life. And he wants you to experience your best life now. Jesus' response to Peter's words are to call him Satan. I mean, I think that is a highly underrated statement that Jesus makes to Peter. We often get rushed right past that. Get behind me, Satan. I mean, that's pretty rough. I've had lots of friends I've had disagreements with, but I've yet to call any of them Satan. But he did. And as I thought about that this week, there were two two quick-ish applications to the interaction between Peter and Jesus in this. And the first is that we don't get to counsel Jesus about what he does or demands. But Jesus is explaining what he is going to do. That is, die horribly for the sins of the world. Peter jumps in and rebukes him. Sharply corrects him is what he means. Tells him no. Now, in Peter's defense, he probably can't fathom really the the suffering of Christ. I mean, he's still reveling in the fact that he made that wonderful statement and Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. And so it is a huge switch to go from the conquering Christ to the suffering Christ. So it is understandable, but we also have to see what ultimately Peter is doing. Ultimately, what Peter is doing is trying to keep Jesus from the cross. No, you can't go to the cross, Lord. That's what he's saying. Now the cross, the cross is central to everything in Christianity. The cross declares a Savior who died. The the, the gospel declares... Savior who bore a cross on our behalf. The gospel demands that those who believe in that Savior take up their cross as well. And all of this comes from Jesus. And you and I, we do not get a say in it. The cross, Scripture says, is foolish to some and offensive to others. But we do not get to remove the message of the cross because some people think it's stupid. 
to think that God died on the cross for the sins of the world. The declaration of the demand of the cross to bear our cross, it will be offensive to some. But we don't get to alter that demand because somebody might be offended that they would have to deny themselves to take up their cross and do what Jesus would have them to do rather than what they would want to do. We can embrace the cross. We can reject the cross. But we do not get to alter the declaration or the demands of the cross. And when we do, altering what Jesus done does or demands is satanic. And that may sound harsh, but that is what Jesus said. Get behind me, Satan. Peter is trying to talk Jesus out of fulfilling the Father's plan. That's exactly what Satan tried to do in the temptation of Matthew chapter 4. Satan means adversary. By calling Peter Satan, Jesus showed Peter was opposing the purpose and the plans of God. I believe that the reason Jesus talked about following Him in terms of the cross is meant to drive home to Peter how wrong he is and how there is no escape of the cross. Removing the cross from Christianity is satanic in origin. Make no mistake. To remove the cross from the declaration of the gospel is satanic. I mean, think about it. Who would want the cross removed from our declaration of the gospel? Would it be the Father who planned it? Would it be the the Christ who bore it? Would it be the Spirit who testifies of it? Or would it be the world that hates it? Would it be Satan that opposes it? Or our flesh that is offended by it? When we take the cross out of our proclamation of the gospel, we have stopped proclaiming the gospel. But at the same time, removing the cross from the Christian, from the demands of discipleship, is also satanic in origin. For who would want that? Would it be the Father who always called on His people to have no other gods before Him? Would it be Jesus who stated that we must take up our cross and follow Him? Would it be the Spirit who empowers us to take up our cross and follow Jesus? Or would it be the world that tries to lull us into lukewarm Christianity? Would it be Satan who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy? Or would it be our flesh that is just naturally selfish? We cannot remove the demand of the gospel that we take up our cross and still have Christianity. And it is not Jesus that leads us to do that. It is satanic in origin. We cannot embrace the idea that Jesus is second in command in our lives. His words will not allow for that. So the, the key thought, I'm in the wrong seat if Jesus is my co-pilot. Everything about my life is wrong. Jesus is my co-pilot.
Following Jesus requires us to surrender to Jesus. As He sets the destination and charts the course of how to get there. And Jesus sets the destination and He charts the course in such a way that we do not even get a say in the route that we take. We just take up our cross and we follow Him. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. There are always going to be areas of our life where we struggle to say no to ourselves and say yes to Jesus. Our sinful nature ensures this is always going to be the case. Yet we still must say no to ourselves and say yes to Jesus if we are to follow Him. Do you feel that struggle within you? Does that struggle bother you? Do you desire to say yes to Jesus and no to yourself, but really seem to have a hard time following through? If so, I want you to raise your hand. It's a way to acknowledge the conflict and your desire to say yes to Jesus. Now the first way any of us are to say yes to Jesus is in His call for salvation. If you have never made the personal decision to call on Jesus to save you, then you you need to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. If you need the salvation that Jesus offers and you are ready to take up your cross and follow Him, I want you to raise your hand as a way of acknowledging the need and expressing your surrender to Jesus. We're going to take a few minutes to pray. If you raise your hand to acknowledge the conflict and your desire to say yes to Jesus, you pray about that right now as specifically as you can. You confess to God where you struggle to say yes to Jesus. You confess it as sin and you ask for His Holy Spirit's powerful help in that. If you raised your hand to acknowledge your need for salvation, you cry out to the Lord to save you. There are no magic words to say to be saved. But you must express your heart and your desire to Him in faith. Let's pray. Father, we love you today. We thank you for Jesus and what he has done for us on the cross. Lord, give us an ever deepening understanding 
of what Jesus endured on our behalf. Father, drive the cross of Christ so deeply into our minds, into our hearts, that, Lord, we just nearly weep when we read and think about all that Christ has done on our behalf. Oh, God, save us from our selfishness. Save us from the call of lukewarm Christianity. Save us from the tempter's designs to destroy in our lives. Give us a resolve that we will follow Jesus. That we will say no to ourselves and we will say yes to Him. But God, we know that there will be times when we fall short. Lord, in those times we are weak and we are easy prey to Satan. Let him not win in our lives in those times of selfishness and sin. Rather than let us wallowing in self-pity and condemnation, let us just get up, return to Jesus, confess that failure, and seek to do better next time. Help us to see that You are here. That Jesus is always our advocate. And He is always calling us to come deeper to Him. To lay our burdens down. To let Him give us rest. Guide us today to do Your will, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.